0: Hey, guys, it's Dan from the Backchat Podcast. We're running our tipping competition again. That's right. Last year, we had huge prizes. I think we gave away thousands of dollars. This year, it's going to be even better. You have to be a patron, though, so head to backchatpodcast.com.au. You can sign up as a patron there. You get access to early episodes and also our merch. It's pretty good.
1: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online
3: Right, oh, here we go. Tom Boyd joins us on Backchat. Chat, powered by Fleet Network. This year, very excited to have this man in the house for one of our November features. Thomas, nice to meet you, mate, and uh, lovely to have you on the show.
4: Oh, it's great to be on. It's um, this is kind of like the uh, the most crazy time of year in my career, almost. Really around this trade period, and. You know, there's never a better time to see in the souls of these media personalities who spend time commentating on the game at uh, a trade period and you know, how bad everyone is and how much clubs are wasting money. And yeah, I've been all through it, so it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I, think,
0: I think we should just address something straight off the bat. Uh, Tom is uh, out the front of the sun currently. <laughs> the sun is parked right out front, your window. Uh, so you're glowing if you're watching on YouTube.
4: You know, there's actually, like, I actually thought of one fix that we didn't try, which is cleaning the camera. Because you know that's what it is. And now that we haven't tried it, should we try it?
3: You can give me a little give rub. A give it a rub while we're going. You I think like... Give it a little. It's yeah, actually little. might
4: fix it. And then all of a sudden, it'll all go into focus. Wait a minute. Is that better?
3: No, you're, you're even brighter, which is yeah. great. It's fine. We're, we're rolling with it. You're absolutely illuminated right now. Um, Tom, I know you're a big Back Chat fan, but just in case you're not, we ask the same, uh, same question to every guest we ever have on this podcast. We start with the same thing. And... It's based around the sporting achievements of our guests. Now, we know um, look, we know you've done pretty much the greatest thing in AFL land, which is won mm-hmm. an AFL premiership. You're a number one drafter. You played across two clubs. You've done a lot of great things in the AFL and then some great things post-career as well. But I want to say, um, just for this moment, I don't care. I, I want to hear your greatest sporting achievement not on the football field. I want to know what you can do without a footy in your hands. Now, my co-host Dan... Um, look, five for 16. Five for
0: 16 in the grand final, uh, taking wickets, not winning grand finals, but taking wickets. Pretty good effort.
3: Yeah. I'm an uh, under nine uh, 80 meter hurdle champion. Um, we've had many examples across the line. What have you got for us, mate? What can you do off the footy field? Uh,
4: second in the under 16 state mixed netball champion, schools championship. Great. So that was strong. Um, that was actually, funnily enough, that was with my best mate, Dan McStay, who was obviously playing at Collingwood this year, who ended up actually going to play for Australia. Would you believe, It's the gold defence, young Daniel? I don't know how much he shares that, so I'll just blow his cover.
1: Did he really? Um,
4: yeah, he was, mate. He was incredible. It's like he had the same, you know, the same athletic skill set, I suppose that he has now. He's long and fast and athletic. So um, that was one. We came fourth in the uh, club championships for basketball in the nationals in under twelves. Um, wow. So we went up to Darwin and, and lost to like Dante and uh, Ben Simmons and those boys who ended up, you know, playing in the NBA and dating Kardashians. Uh, a few <laughs> um, so, yeah, probably those two. I mean, there was sort of a few different things along the way, but basketball and football was sort of my uh, predominant. And then more recently, mixed netball uh, grand final premiers in the life uh, wow. down here in Albert Park in, in, uh, <laughs> in the last little bit. And uh you wouldn't believe it, but I played against a guy in that who I later found out played for the New Zealand national team. He's seven foot one. His name's Junior. Look him up. He is massive. And yeah. um, anyway, sure, sure, surely enough we didn't beat them in the next season. But in the first one we did all right when we were yeah.
3: in I mean, Dan, you're a big time mixed net baller.
0: Yeah, I, I got in too many heated arguments with like Martha and Barbara, like the, the referees. like because cause I played so much footy as a kid and like you want to you want to be physical and like anytime you touch the ball or like bump someone slightly, they they get like called foul and it's, it's, I don't know. How do you go like playing um, a mixed sport with your wife? Because I think if, I think in past when me and my wife played on like a mixed volleyball team, it wasn't good for the relationship.
4: Yeah. Anna, uh, my wife had a very clear mindset around how it was going to go. She said, it's going to lead to two outcomes. The first would be, we're going to get divorced and the second would be we're going to have another baby so um, <laughs> one or 2 Um to say neither has happened yet. I've been injured. I actually just had back surgery a couple of weeks ago on a, an old footy injury so um, we're all good. There's no more children and no divorces on the agenda so we'll just have to keep playing to, to get to one of those I suppose. Huge
3: hunting <laughs> for that national championship. Um, now Todd you know I do want to take you back a little bit and, and hear a bit about your upbringing. You know you, well, you're from a sporting family or no, your mum is from Denmark. I'm interested to hear how growing up was for you. Was it was it a sporting upbringing? Were you we always good at sport? And was it something your family did a lot?
4: Yeah, I mean, I sort of um, – so dad was the predominant sportsman in our household. My mum would love to tell you that she did things when we were kids, but, you know, ball sports weren't really her thing. Um so, Dad was a, a big sort of local level cricketer, local level footballer. I think he got suspended either for life or for many, many games for playing basketball and thinking you could fight in basketball, which um, <laughs> yeah, was sort of a worst version of your description of netball before. Um, so, yeah, he was the he was the guy who sort of pushed me. And, and you know, I've, I've told people a few uh, a few times his stories. So, I, I came into school like in my first year in prep as a relatively normal sized kid, but. By the end of that first year, I'd grown 27 centimetres and I was almost the biggest kid in the school. Wow. And so, you know, that helps, you know, to no end, obviously running through the ranks of basketball and football. You know, I almost made the, the schoolboys team in under-12s, played in the interleague sides the whole way through, started at the Rangers at under-14s, um, finished there at under-18s with a premiership. But um, I think the thing for me was, you know, sport was such a big part, but my parents were also just – Hugely, hugely encouraging of me making sure that I did well at school. So I kind of got to a teetering point uh, around 15 or 16, post the national championships uh, with football when I when I captained Victoria, um, and we didn't do that well for that matter. Nor did I do that well.
1: Uh, And
4: I just had to basically work out where I was going to go. And basketball is an incredibly unforgiving sport when it comes to time. Like you have to dedicate the time to be there, and the coaches are all miserable. My guess is because many of them come back from overseas as you know disappointed or whatever, and they're all short, which makes no sense because why would you play football if you're not like six seven? <laughs> um, and uh, I got to that stage, and there's a really clear reason in my mind why I chose football. and And I grew up at a place called Mullum Mullum Reserve, which is a, a you know the local footy ground at Norwood uh, in in the north, uh, the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. And, on the walls, you can imagine there's like the Premiership Cups and there's the um, you know, teams of the past who've won and the flags and all that stuff. But there was this one photo on the wall which always was the, the most important one to me. And it was this photo of a, a guy with a massive burly beard, uh, black and white photo, holding a Premiership Cup above his head and getting two VBs poured on him. Wow. Like, this, is, this is the pinnacle of sporting excellence from a very <laughs> young age. <laughs> and um, that photo was of my dad. So he co- uh, captain coached the 1989 uh, Division Three Premiership in the AFL. So to follow in dad's footsteps was the way to go for me. Always always loved football, I think, from a culture point of view, more than basketball. And, um, yeah, chose the right direction.
3: You should have recreate. Well, I don't know. Maybe you did recreate that photo <laughs> with the uh, AFL The, cup, the, the beard. beard. Yeah, okay. That's fair. And you can't disrespect the old man like that. Say, so oh, look at a photo like this because your dad would have said, there's no beard there, son. <laughs> did he three? <laughs> Divvy 3, Croydon-type areas, that's very good. Um, so you mentioned it off the top. It is sort of trade period and leading towards the draft period. You had some great years with junior footy. You end up being a number one draft pick. Um, how do you reflect on that time of, well, your, your life? Everyone else is externally looking in at what you sort of went through, but you know what it's like. What's that, I'm assuming, pressure? What's that time like as a, as a young man You know, trying to make it in the big stage?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's real, really different depending on what you're what you like. I mean, you know, in the last, um, you know, five or six or it's almost 10 years, I think, now since I got drafted, uh, there's been a bunch of number one picks and, you know, to varying degrees of success. And I think the way that you approach football as a whole, um, you know, is completely different depending on your personality. So for me, one of the things that was a cornerstone of my um, success as an 18-year-old was that I was absolutely putting all of my effort into school as much as I could around football. Um, and I remember, you know, having just incredibly high standards for myself at that age in terms of not not just preparation, not just commitment, not just, you know, execution, but I had to have the outcome on the field that I was getting used to. And, and to be frank, that outcome was in 2012, when we played in the, the TAC Cup as a junior, as a bottom age player, you know, I won the league goal kicking for a team that won three games for the year. And the year after that, I started the season averaging a tick under five goals a game against the best players in the country, against the best players in the state through the sort of National Carnival and also the TAC Cup. And that was what I expected of myself. And I remember it like it was yesterday. There was this, um, we played this game against Bendigo, I think, at Box Hill City Oval. And I had kicked three goals eight and had like 23 disposals or something like that. Wow. On. And I came off the ground and um, I looked in the paper, as you do, just to see, you know, how you went as you check whether you got in the best or not. And I looked at the 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 best for Bendigo and the best on player was the guy who played on me. And I turned around to doubt. I said if you think a fullback should get best on for having 11 shots at goal, you're nuts. And Dad being an adult at the time and having a bit more perspective than me, he said, Tom, they're not ranking him as a backman. They're ranking you know him compared to you. It's the first time you've been kept under five goals for the year. And that like addiction that I had to just being not only the best player on the ground, but a dominant player on the ground, which didn't hold me in great stead, I think, because I sort of... You know, and again, this is ten years down the track that you learn these things. But I think in hindsight, I was I was probably um, valuing my own um, personal ability to bring good to the world, or my own validation of who I was as a person and as a footballer, based on things that are very very difficult to control once you get to the top level, and obviously the competition becomes a lot lot stiffer. So um, Mm -hmm. it was a fantastic period of time in my life. I was incredibly successful, as I said, as an eighteen year old, had a great time, was really excited to join the league, and. Um, in many ways, I think up until probably the last three or four years, they were the, probably the happiest times in my life. Um, so, yeah, it was an interesting period. And I think, again, as I said, it's different for every single draftee, let alone every number one pick.
3: Well, yeah, you're right. So right now, over over West, number one pick lies with West Coast. Right now, Harley Reid, highly touted. And again, externally, I think people look in and maybe don't understand that you don't just – you don't get that sort of uh title, you know, number one favorite trap by just being there or maybe being tall in your case or that mentality to be the best. I just, I would say that is common across number one draft picks. I don't think there'd be many of you guys that just happened to be, you know, picked number one and it was good luck. From a young age. Do you think that's what differentiates you? It sounds like that's what you've just said.
4: The- yeah, I think I think you have to choose that you want to be the number one pick to it. Like, I don't know any player that's come through in the recent years. And admittedly, you know, I'm not a footy-nuffy or, a, you know, I don't live and breathe the, uh, the draft in particular, but even football like I used to. Um, but you, you, you have to get to a stage when I remember entering the sort of top age year of under-18s going, well, I don't need to go into this year going, I need to prove myself. I'd already proven myself. We won a national championship the year before. I'd been selected in the AAS. I was the best key forward in the draft. Um, you know, I won the league goal kicking team of the year. I'd done everything I needed to do as a sort of 17 year old. And it was basically the best output that you could get. So then it's like, well, what's, what's next? You can't just go, well, I kicked 46 goals last year or whatever it was. I'm going to kick 70 because that wasn't going to be a viable option for me either, because I wasn't going to play the whole year, given the amount of travel we had. So um, it was really around, well, what do you want to get out of this year and what's going to drive you to get the most out of yourself? And for me, it was, well, why not go for the number one pick? And look, you know, many people have asked me the question since I retired. They like, oh, go, "Would it have been different? Would you've got as much pressure if you weren't the number one pick?" It's an irrelevant question, obviously. It's not yeah. something I can change. But the other question to ask is, you know, would I have been offered a massive contract if I wasn't the number one pick, key forward player who had proven himself as a junior? So that halfway through my first season, clubs were willing to take a punt on me long term. No, the answer is no. So. Again, that was my focus going in. And and I think that for the for the most part, all of those guys at the top end of the draft, but in particular those number ones, have to want to be there because they've got to convince clubs that they can handle the pressure uh, once that actually happens.
0: What, what were some of the questions like um, pre-draft interview with teams? Are they telling you, look, you're probably the number one pick, but you know, obviously only one team gets that pick. So uh, are teams, yeah, how did that sort of process play out?
4: Yeah, so different for me, I think, than a lot. I mean, so we had – the Giants had pick one and two that year, so they took me and then Josh Kelly. And, you know, the typical questions are, you know, I remember walking into the combine in particular, which is obviously where, like, the most stories come out of. And, you know, there's guys walking around with 20 interviews, like multiple ones with the same club. Every other club's asking. Everyone who's sort of between – say picked 15 and 35, you're the most um, interesting people at the combine because you're still sort of in between where you can go, whether it be in the, the first or second round. And I came back and actually kind of felt a bit flat about it. I had three interviews. <laughs> <laughs> first was with Melbourne and they all, all they wanted to tell me was that I wasn't fit enough and that was great. And I was like, okay, well, you know, thanks.
3: <laughs> so let me know. Appreciate
4: it. at the moment. Um, The other one was with, I think it was with Carlton maybe. No, it must have been with St Kilda at that stage. And they were great. You know, it was a good chat. They're like, Tom, we're not going to get you, but it was great to spend some time. We just want to do our due diligence. Um, And then the Giants. And the Giants said, hey, Tom, we're going to take you with pick one, so pack your back. (laughs) Um, Actually, I lied. There was a fourth interview because I was sitting around all day at the combine because I didn't do the test. I'd had a massive ankle injury that year. And, um, forgive me for forgetting his name, but the guy from West Coast actually came up to me and he said, do you want to come do an interview with us? You look bored. <laughs> <laughs> was it Trevor
3: Woodhouse or Rowan O'Brien? It would have been one of those. Yeah, movies. it would have
4: been one of those. It might have been Rowan. And um, I was like, sure. So we spent 30 minutes, you know, shooting the breeze and and uh, and just filling in time. But, you know, I'll, I'll, again, my, my experience was so surreal. I, I just signed an Under Armour contract. I was doing filming off to the side. I was doing... You know, media interviews, left, right and centre. I was watching the guys go through the trials. I was listening to the anxiety and the pressure and the despair and frustration and disappointment that all of these guys are facing and I'm just sitting there going, it's not the same for me. Um, you know, I've already basically embarked on my AFL journey and, um, yeah, it was completely different.
3: So what's it like walking into GWS? The first time then we've spoken to a few guys over the past 12, 18 months that were a part of those inaugural teams and. Um, you know, it's a different experience to being drafted to an existing club that is set up well uh, in GWS. You know, they've gone on to do some great things over the past decade or so, but those early days were pretty pretty tough. Would that be a good descriptor?
4: Yeah, so I'll preface this by saying, um, you know, I, feel, I almost feel like I missed out a little bit at the Giants in terms of <clears throat> I've heard so many good stories of that place since I was there, and in particular... You Know realistically, it was probably not until say 20, end of 2015, 2016 when they really started to hit their straps. Um, and look, you know, there's been so many great people that were there that I know, and players that have left, and you know, players that are still there. That you know, it's an incredible, by all, by all accounts, an incredible place to play, and it's a proper club now. Yeah. When I joined, it was not, um, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. And there's there's a sort of a few key factors that I remember that really stand out. To me, and, and look, I think to go back to the draft process, I got drafted on a Thursday night. I think it was mid mid November, or twenty third, or something like that. I started preseason by f- like I went to sleep in Sydney on the Sunday. Um, that's how fast things change, yeah. and you know, within that period of time, whilst I had a runway of a month and a half to think about, oh well, I'm going to the Giants, and I'm moving to Sydney, and I actually could organise the stuff. So I had a car up there and all this sort of stuff. Um, those three nights are the only ones that really matter in terms of preparing because you realise it's now it's now happening. It's certainly happening and now I'm ready to go. And, you know, you go into these apartments with, you know, we're living in Breakfast Point, which is one of the most heavily publicised incorrectly stories of all time where I think they all thought we lived in like a mansion together. Well, I,
3: think, so, I think I thought that. I think I thought that.
4: Yeah. Like, we sure. lent into it too because I um, I remember posting a photo of the country club at Breakfast Point and saying it's a great new place to be living. As <laughs> <eight>. <laughs> All of my mates thought that we lived in a mansion with like 40 blokes. <laughs> Breakfast Point is like many uh, suburbs in Sydney, so the, the planned suburbs they do up there. I think there was 10,000 people ended up living in that suburb, so we were just a very small part of it. But right. it was kind of living, like it was like living in the Truman Show, like very old population sort of you know, you've got your own sterile shopping center and you've got your own little oval and country club. It's like it's almost like living on a golf course, which is which was really weird. Yes. Um, and certainly nothing that I'd experienced before. And then you walk into the club, quote unquote, which had wasn't finished at that stage, because they'd built in Blacktown. And then they moved out of there when they realized no one wanted to travel an hour and forty minutes out of town. <laughs> and then our new facility at Tom Wills Oval wasn't built yet. So I was training in the underground um the gym is a strong word, of the ass centre from the 2000 Olympic Games. And there was probably a 10 by 4, 10 metres by 4 metres gym. There was, you know, know, stuff everywhere, offices that were just crammed with paper. It was tiny and it just didn't fit us at all. And this is going to sound like the most uppity AFL sookie thing ever, but when you have to like go to the facility and then you have to pack your bags and then drive seven minutes to go to the, to training and then drive seven minutes back and then, you know, you get strapped at the, at the center and then you go to the – it was just a nightmare. Like kids were all late all the time. Yes. Um, that, sounds, that sounds horrific. I'm really sorry you had to oh, go through Dan. that, man. That sounds Dan, really bad. Yeah. You, didn't, you didn't have angry people like Leon Cameron yelling at you, Dan. <laughs> when you were <laughs> um, but the other thing was like that that group of players was so unique at that stage and what what I mean by unique is that there might have been 20 first round picks in that group and then there was like this next cohort of guys who were basically trying to prove themselves as you know serious players in the league like the Scullies and the Wards and the Davis of the world and then you had this other cohort which was like Dean Brogan, Chad Corns, Luke Power, um, Josh Hunt had played with a Stephen Gillum. And it was like, you know, three different materials that kind of didn't mix, if that makes sense. Um, And what I found was there was just so much insecurity um, from myself included, I must say, um, around who was going to play the next week, who was, you know, in this position, um, you know, what you were supposed to do around the club, who was the, the big dog around the place, what the standards were. Everything was so ambiguous because we were just trying to figure it out. That's, you know, I just, I didn't enjoy that part because it wasn't a football club to me. It wasn't what I'd grown up with. It wasn't the, you know, hierarchical age thing that you see at most of these senior clubs. Um, and look, we also sucked. So that wasn't making it any easier.
3: <laughs> well. So do you remember your first game then?
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah. First game ever played at Adelaide Oval by Adelaide. And Danger, I think, had four and 25 at half time. <laughs> How did you play? We're down. Oh no! I might as well not have been out there. Um, I think we we were down by sixty at halftime. We lost by uh, maybe eighty or ninety points. Um, I had five touches for the day. I think we had maybe maybe in the teens for inside fifties. Um, pretty dark day. Pretty dark. Yeah, Uh, tough.
3: Again, like you said, you're you're built up with a bunch of young blokes. It turns it into a pretty tough task when you get no inside 50s as a key forward running around down there. So you played played nine games in your first season with GWS. At what point does a trade become uh, an option, thought about, viable, given you the number one pick? Um, You're a Victorian, obviously, but for a number one pick to be traded after their first year, it's pretty unique.
4: Yeah, so um, there'd been a few clubs that had attempted to get the number one pick the year before. Um, you know, I don't want to allegedly, uh, Carlton had had a crack. I think the Saints had had a discussion. Maybe the Bulldogs have been really hot on it, like really hot and trying to get it um, as much as they possibly can. And look, they've had a long littered history of um, key forwards that have been there for a little bit. Uh, and they've never really had that, that guy who was, you know, like the Aaron Norton tra- uh, signing that just happened. The guy that's going to be there for, for 10 to 12 years, be there every week, play every week, all that sort of stuff. So I remember um, it was around the middle of the season or must have been maybe in the first third of the season that dad called me up on a on a Thursday night. And it was pretty stereotypical. Dad would call me, you know, chit-chat about the weekend, what's coming up, you know, what did they say about last week, what are you going to do differently? You know, just typical father and son um, discussions about footy. And then midway through the discussion, dad just goes, oh, you've had a contract offer. And it was like he just... Had a frog in his throat and it just jumped out. It was real, it was real strange. Now, like to be clear, my dad is grew up in Faulkner, was a sparky all his life. Dealt with you know the unions. Like, he's he's not exactly a man of many words. He's a very serious <laughs> and scary individual for the most part. Um, and that's saying something because I've got you know seven or eight inches on him at the moment, so he still scares the shit out of me. But anyway. <laughs> And, uh, and I, you know, as you do, I said, Well, what's his contract offer? And he goes, He said, maybe the dumbest thing he's ever said to me in his life. He goes, Tom, you got a really big game this weekend. I don't want you to think too much about this contract. I want you to focus on the game. I want you to go out there, play well, and I'm flying up to see you, and we'll talk about it on Sunday. So I thought about the contract for the next three days. <laughs> Wait, rubbish. And just walked in, Ben, like, mate, this is so stupid. And we sat down at a place called the Palace Hotel. Uh, in uh, in Breakfast Point, I was in Concord. Technically, the the pub that we all used to go to, um, Kevin Sheedy's favorite pub, actually, whilst he was living up there,
3: can I have a beer, Kev.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a tab there too, just coincidentally, um, <laughs> still open. Um, yeah, and uh, we sat down for a steak dinner, and anyway, so Dad you know, sort of was not saying anything, and so I asked, "What well, are you going to tell me about what's going on?" And he said, "Well, the office from the Bulldogs and." You know, I, I didn't know a lot about the the dogs at the time. Um, you know, being an Eastside boy, they weren't super relevant. Like I remember the, the eight, nine, ten years, they were awesome to watch. Like loved watching them play through those prelims. Um, but you know, there was Bont was there, who I'd played footy with. Um, Nathan Robat was there, Mitch Huntingchurch, Jack McRae, a few of these guys that have played state footy or or with through the juniors were there. And I was like, oh, okay, I can't understand. I know they're down the bottom of the ladder, ish. I think they were sort of fourteenth or something like that. Had no idea they were over the Westgate. That's how well I was going. And if you're not from Melbourne, that most <laughs> of to you. But Westgate's how you get everywhere, West. And, I'm, from
3: uh, I'm from Geelong. I know exactly what's yeah, going and on.
4: I didn't know that the Footscray was over there. So, um, you know, then I said to dad, what's the offer? And he goes, seven over seven. And I said, oh, 700 grand a year for seven years. How good's that? I was like, sitting there doing math, being like, I could buy 20 land cruises for that much money. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, before I got too carried away by the, you know, the tire size I was going to put on those things, he goes, uh, "No, seven mil over seven years." And you know, it was one of those things which, you know, to this day, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's a ridiculous amount of money, um, for any player. But you know, the the, the cherry on top is, you know, I, I played probably three or four of those nine games you mentioned earlier at that stage. Um, I hadn't played any good in pretty much any of them. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe had a good quarter against or two against Geelong. But I was also, you know, from all, the, from all I understand, that was the second biggest deal in AFL history at that stage. Um, right behind Buddies uh, as Pickers, who was my manager too, who did that one the year before. So it was just this like, holy shit moment. And then you start working out, well, the anxiety or the anticipation that comes from that is how we're we going to get a deal done because it seems obvious as the choice that you're going to make, which is I'm going to go and sign this massive deal, but it's not as simple as that. And it does take time and, and you know, in the end, quite a bit of luck.
3: So Ryan Griffin's involved in the deal that gets done in the end. A few first-round draft picks. Ryan Griffin, of course, the captain of the Western Bulldogs at the time, walks away effectively. Uh, the coach is sacked Brendan McCarth- uh, McCartney. Um, so there's a fair bit going on at the time when the actual deal gets done. But to sort of separate the mechanics um, – are you nineteen at this stage? Like at the end of that year, are you nineteen when this is happening? Yeah,
4: happened? August twenty-two. I turned nineteen. This would have been in October, so yeah, I've been in nineteen for five weeks.
0: And, and so, just to clarify, your dad brought the deal to you. How? What was that sort of?
3: Is he your manager at the time?
4: Yeah. How no. so, so, my my manager then and and now, uh, ten years or eleven years, we've almost been together is Liam Pickering and and James Pitcher. So the guys who are then from. Strategic, I think their name was, but they've changed. They work for the Bravo guys now and Hutchie. But um, the mechanics was essentially this deal is so big. There's only, there was only two people in the world who knew about it outside of obviously the Western Bulldogs, which was Liam Pickering and my dad. So, um, and, and maybe pitch at that stage, so I don't know. Um, but dad basically was just the one who communicated it to me because he, he you know, like, there's a the thing about managers, they're amazing at keeping secrets until they're not. And uh, I found out later that once they don't want to keep a secret, it gets out so fast. Um, but with, uh, with Dad basically coming up and talking to me, he just wanted to basically explain as um, you know, the adult of the household and someone who'd obviously looked after me my whole life up until about six months before this. Um, what was going on, what was going to happen next. And and the conversation was really around, we're going to go back and see them during the buy. We're going to go and visit them. They're going to give us a a presentation. We're going to talk about how to get the deal done. And then you make a decision. Um, And I was like, oh, great. And I needed that from him because as you you can probably, maybe you can't imagine, but as you can probably try to imagine, as an 18-year-old hearing a deal like that, you're trying to piece together basically how to teleport in time to the point where you get your first paycheck. So... He was um he was helping me with that and then, um look it was more you know as a father as and someone as I you know really really look up to and I've always respected his advice and and wisdom it was really around how do we get this done once we get the chance to possibly have a crack at it do we go after it and um how do I mentally you know stay strong through what is likely to be quite a tumultuous period of time through this this trade period
3: to put it in context for people that haven't been on AFL list haven't. Uh uh, my lowly draft position of 50 was just the 49 behind Tom's. In my first year, I was on $45,000 plus match fees and I made the big jump up to $60,000 plus the same match fees in my second year. So Tom went from whatever he was on in that first year.
4: $69,000.
3: you are on sixty nine. dollars Okay, so you weren't that far in front of me and then you made a little bit of a jump to a million bucks the next <laughs> seven years. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's, it's important because I think some people sort of would not understand the context of that deal. And you said it yourself. It's At the time, there's some big money being thrown around on some big years um, sort of post this. But at the time, it's the biggest deal in AFL history. For a 19-year-old, with the rest of the competition's 19-year-olds, somewhere in the early you know, tens of thousands, that's the difference that Tom was. Yeah. Uh, di- didn't the Giants come mm-hmm. out, Tom, and say, uh, Tom Boyd will not be traded under any circumstances?
4: Absolutely. Yeah, well, uh, Dave Matthews, who I ran into at the uh, Albert Park pub not that long ago, he goes, you're the only player we ever lied about. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, you're the only player that we actually ended up changing our mind and, and, uh, and getting to that point. But, you know, to that to that point, uh, you know, like when guys get drafted, it's, you know, especially back then, I don't know what their salaries are now. Again, walking out of school into 69 grand, I think we had cost of living and chucked on that, which was 10 or 12%. And then I had a couple of other things that came through, given that I was the number one pick. You know, it's, it's good money. It's crazy money for a guy who'd come straight out of school. But, um, you know, it's not life changing for a lot of people. And there's a, you know, people, again, don't want to hear this. It's expensive to be an AFL footballer, especially when you're young compared to, you know, your mates were at uni eating ramen at home and, you know, just pottering along and drinking, you know, beers only at happy hour. Um, there's a lot of cost that goes into eating the right things and travel and, you know, organising your finances and all that sort of stuff. So um, it was a massive jump forward. And, you know, to to the point about um, whether they actually said they were going to trade me or not, it was just this period of time where, you know, I'd gone away at the end of that first season and I was cooked, you know. It had been a big year. You know, much like the college system in the States, that first season, say, if you get drafted into the NFL, it's kind of a two-year straight run because you don't get any time off because that off-season that you typically get at the end of the year is spent doing the draft, preparing for the combine, all of that sort of – and, you know, for us in Australia, it's doing your exams as well. So yeah. I'd essentially yeah. been running nonstop from January to um, the end of uh, – well, definitely not into September that year, at the end of August <laughs> um, <laughs> oh. uh, with the Giants. And so I'd gone away. So I said I wanted to go overseas. I went over to, to the place called the Eyes, um for a surf retreat um, there's no reception, nothing. It was just get away. Thankfully, I signed power of attorney over to my manager before I left. Um, and whilst I'm over there, that news of Griff asking for a trade to to us, right, specifically to the Giants, which is a big part of this whole thing, um, broke. And, um, you know, I got this uh, got this sense that obviously something was happening. My manager texts me, dad texts me because um, we could do iMessage over the Wi-Fi. And the advice got given all through all the turmoil because it was no guarantee this was going to go through. The likelihood that they just said, no, go away, um, bad luck. It was going to make my life so much more difficult dealing with the Giants players the following year and the club as a whole and the football public, right, especially if the number got out. Um, but Dad said to me something that always has stood out uh, in my mind from a memory point of view, which was, you know, for everything good that happened in his life, especially in business, it always always happened when he was willing to take a risk. And he was willing to put something on the line and risk something to get something more than what he currently had, and I took that in as a 19 year old and and had a crack, and the next few days were hell on earth. Like the amount of people who who were not happy with the number because the the seven year seven million dollar contract leaked at that stage, right in the midst of this whole thing, and. You know, the criticism came thick and fast. Much of it was obviously online. It wasn't really getting to me at that moment. But, you know, in hindsight, it was quite significant. And to the point of the 19-year-old, the thing that happened with me that really changed the landscape, if you will, is not the money or the time. It's the fact that I was the first real high draft pick who said, you sign me for two years, I don't care, I'm going to leave anyway. um, And force my way out of the club. And that for the football loyalists, the club media departments, even the AFL as a whole is a real threat to their model of building players as part of these clubs and the superstars that drive membership, the superstars that drive viewership. Um, you know, I was doing the exact opposite. I was getting out of this new club who needed players, like you know, hopefully I would end up have been um, to stay and, and to build something at the Giants, but um, obviously I had other ideas. It
3: sounds like you've got an incredibly close relationship with your father.
4: Yeah, I mean, he's always been the um, the guy to turn to when I've needed advice or support. Um, you know, he's also, you know, one of the few people I think in my life who, look, Dad, as I said, Dad grew up with a pretty tough upbringing, um, but has always been a leader of men, right? He's always been the, ca- the captain or the coach or, you know, he's you know, ended up owning his own business with you know, hundreds of employees. Like, Dad did really well for himself from a really low base. And, you know, I think he's always had probably the – um, the mental fortitude and the toughness and the, you know, ability to not care what other people think that I really didn't have at that stage. You know, I, m- I much more took after my mum and wanted to please people and make sure people were happy and they liked me and, you know, I was professional and do the right things and all that sort of stuff. Um, and look, the thing that's changed, I would say to me now as a 28 year old is I couldn't give two shits what people say a- anymore. It just really doesn't bother me. And you make up your own mind and your own opinions and, you know, We were joking before we started recording about how big your thumbs are with all of your tweeting. But in all honesty, (laughs) I I love that stuff now because as a footballer, and it'd be interesting to hear your opinion, as a footballer, you're trained to walk the party line, not stand out, not say anything that's untoward, that'll give give attention to the club or yourself. Um, In fact, in most cases, if you don't have the opinion that everyone else is supposed to have, you might as well not have an opinion at all. And I found that incredibly difficult to deal with because as you know I did well at school I was interested in other things um, but my opinion and those parts of myself that I valued and value to to this day didn't matter unless I kicked enough goals on the weekend
3: yeah the performance element inside footy clubs I hold pretty similar views Um, similar to you I valued school probably as high if not higher than footy when I was a youngster didn't have the same sort of um, you know credentials I guess coming out of junior footy but um, I found the uh, you know, everyone having to form under the same banner. This is what you say. This is what you don't say. I I, I call bullshit on that pretty early. And although I wasn't as out, outspoken as I have been, probably post career, I still at at times during my time at West Coast found myself in a closed room with four or five people sitting down, saying, "Why did you say this?" And I, and most of the time, it was the answer was well, it's just what I kind of think about it. And you know, um, to, towards the end of my career, probably. Probably, yeah, not, I was no hero and was never going to keep going forever, but probably there was the physical side, but there was a the mental side with the fight and the toe in the company line bullshit that used to go on that I sort of had had enough of. So, yeah, I can definitely, um, yeah, certainly empathise from one point, but also, yeah, agree with what you're saying with the characters that form in the AFL now, which we're starting to see a bit more of, I think.
4: Yeah, I mean, there are characters. That's the thing. But historically, the characters have been the ones who get in trouble, right? Correct. I mean, look, there is there is more to football than the, the pin-up boy, perfect citizen that we just described. And the opposite of that, you know, the Dane Swan character of, you know, I'm just a lad playing football. I don't really care about anything. Like, they're the two archetypes that I see and I've seen over a long period of time. To your point, there's... There's really interesting guys who are interested in stuff out of footy, and girls for that matter. There's people who are, you know, incredibly um, differently inclined, whether they think about the world differently or whether they think about football differently. It doesn't really matter. They have, there's so many different individuals that make our great game the great game that it is. Um, and we've been robbed of those personalities for a long time because one, it's, you know, not favorable for the clubs to have, you know, multiple personalities to deal with. Two, the media is very, you know, I would say, um, you know, they fit into the same model that everyone else has up until the last three years, which is you've got seven or eight minutes to prove your point and that's it. And then, you know, finally, you know, I remember hearing many stories since retiring and I never went down the media path, but hearing about players who are incredibly good at doing the media piece and on, on, on television and had opinions and thoughts. And But if they don't have enough accolades to put in your title that sits below your name, you're not going to get on television. So... All of this stuff sort of melts in together. And, and I think for me, and again, this is not a criticism of the Bulldogs or the, the league as a whole, I just didn't fit into that mould. And, you know, I've been incredibly lucky to do what I want to do since I finished football. And I think what you learn is that, you know, in many ways, your career that you choose is the place that you grow the most, but it's also the career that you choose that often is the reason that you grow the least, right? And in football, a certain part of me grew very, very quickly. Ability to take feedback, high performance, how to work within you know high performing teams? How to deal with you know stress and pressure? How to perform under big moments? Um, the physical side, you know, but the ability to you know understand how to communicate in a corporate environment—nothing. The ability to you know improve my education—very very difficult to do during a very busy schedule that you have during your football career. There's all sorts of things that I wanted to do, which I have done since. Um, the football doesn't allow the space for, and really that's why I moved on.
3: What about the mentality and uh, I, I guess the mental side of your pathway, and I, I look at it as a pretty unique one, number one draft pick of your first year, you get traded at the, at the end of that year, you sign a deal that's one of the biggest in the AFL, and by the end of your third year, you're a Premier, and you play well in that game, which um, there's not many other things as an AFL player you'd like to hang your hat on playing well in a grand final, winning one. You've Not that you've done everything that you can do in the AFL, but I think – a lot's happened in 3 years what's that what's that mental side like and i don't just mean from a mental health perspective i mean the mentality and you speak about that as a as a junior having that you know i'm going to be better than everyone else does that fade does that increase like where where is all that with some of the pressure surrounded with you know i guess all of that pathway
4: Yeah, I think it depends where you're at from a maturity point of view. Um, You know, I think there were certainly moments in time when I was at the Giants and I thought it was everyone else's fault that I wasn't playing that well. And look, you can do that as a forward anyway. You can blame the delivery, you can blame the lack of uh, opportunity. There's all sorts of things that you can blame if you're not careful. Um, So I think there was an immaturity piece there. I think once I got back to the Bulldogs, I really took a step back um, in the sense of I just wanted to improve and I certainly did that in my second season. And then, you know, with all of the vitriol that I got over those two years leading into the Premiership with the Bulldogs, I think the thing that really stuck with me in my mind, um, you know, and look, I've heard so many stories of players who talk about the challenges they've faced and maybe they hadn't talked about previously and they talk about, you know, even when I was winning a Premiership or kicking a big goal, I felt that, you know, that angst, that that issue that I had off the field was still there with me then. And that wasn't the case for me. The final series in particular was an incredibly happy period of time in my life. but. What I did think post that, and again, I think this comes back to a maturity piece and and maybe a naivety or or an inability to see what the world actually looks like, which was, what are these people going to say to me now? Like, what are they going to say in criticism or in spite or whatever their sort of frustration and negative emotion that they're expressing towards me as this young guy getting paid a lot of money? And probably not living up to their standards at that stage. Um, what are they going to say now to the points that you made? Premiership player, a million dollar a year, um, first uh, number one pick, all in three seasons. Um, and, you know, I think the thing that I, I lost sight of was, one, you know, the challenge of football never ends. It, it gets, it, it beats everyone Eventually. Um, the challenge of turning up, getting your body right, dealing with the mental aspect, dealing with the monotonous grind, dealing with preseason, the crowds, the mistakes, the failure—it it never ends until it does, and then you leave. I, I thought that that was going to end, and that I was going to be able to have some space to just grow at the pace that I thought was, you know, fair. And then the other piece was, you know, for all of the accolades and and the uh, you know the, the fever pitch of that grand final and the moments that I had, um, you know. T- 10 days later, I was in surgery for a shoulder rico. Two weeks after that, I get an ankle clean out. I spend the next six weeks, you know, in a sling uh, and on a crutch, come back to the footy club, haven't run once in the off-season because I'm not allowed to, um, and then you're chasing your time next season. So, um, you know, life changes really, really quickly, and I think it's, it's more around, well, you know, are you going to change with it and work out what you want to do or are you just going to continue to chase after something that you thought you wanted in the past?
0: What did you feel more pressure from the the number one draft pick or the the big contract?
4: Yeah, then it's too hard to differentiate. I, I think really it's around, you know, the the number one pick. The gloss of that fades. So you know, your first season they expect a lot of you. The second year, third year, um, but after a while, people might say, "Oh, he's not. He's not that good." Maybe he was the number one pick. But the money doesn't the money that you're on is the judge jury and executioner every single year for every player so you know I think a good example is you know as I mentioned earlier Aaron Norton kicks almost 50 goals this year but he didn't have a good year because everyone's like he's on good money and he's an up and, up and coming superstar but that that yardstick is never something that you can ever really live up to unless you're in the top five or six plays in the league and they're the ones that everyone goes oh they deserve it. And then, you know, they have one half bad game and they're like, this guy's rubbish or whatever. So um, it, it, it's impossible to, to make the distinction, I think. But certainly once that money came in, that's the that's the kerosene on the fire that really caused the pressure. And, and look, I've said this to people a thousand times.
1: Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
4: Getting tweeted at mean stuff is, you know, it's not nice, especially when you're young, but it's, it was fine. I'd just ignore it by the end. Same as Instagram and social media. Getting screamed out at the footy is less nice, especially when you've got your wife or your mum or your dad sitting there and these people aren't abusing you because you missed a kick. They're abusing you because you're a stain on the earth. The ones that really got me were, you know, when I'm in the supermarket and people are abusing me or I'm walking down the street and people are hollering stuff out of cars. Um, that's what I was dealing with when I first came back to Melbourne. And what that led me to do was like, oh, I'm just going to go to training, going to go to the game, going to come home. And that's about the three places that I feel comfortable spending. Every time that I went out to any social event, I was having issues with people, especially if there's any drinking going on. Um, it was just a nightmare. So that's that's where really the rubber met the road for me. Um, and as I said, you know, being a number one picks enough, but if you pour a massive contract, which I accepted by the way, and I'm glad that I did, um, that's where the, the real fire starts. It's
3: outrageous that you are yeah, for like such a positive thing. Um, like all these things we're talking about, they're all like any 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 AFL player would literally be like, You want to do that tomorrow? You'd probably do it. Number one pick, big contract, premiership. Yeah, you're talking about the abuse you're copying in the supermarket. I I hadn't really heard you speak about that. So I think that's outrageous. Um, not from you speaking about it, but the yeah, fact that it <laughs> actually happened. Who's got the balls?
0: That would to be good up. Up. Who's oh, got the, like oh, balls? The, the courage to Who's go it? up to someone at a supermarket. Courage. And- yeah, Who's well, got
3: the courage? Who's the weakest human in the fucking world it's, it's that wants a, to walk up to someone it's a, weak in a act? It's a weak act, weak, but you still oh. have to
0: build up the courage to go say that to someone. It's still it's pretty,
4: it's pretty easy when you're doing a drive-by in the cars. That's yeah, when yeah, they, yeah. that's
3: yeah. sorry. That triggered me a little bit. Yeah, in um, all honesty,
4: let me tell you one thing. Um I so in the best before the best game of my career, the best moment in my sporting career, other than obviously the ones we mentioned earlier, <laughs> um, you know, I'm driving through the grand final parade and there's a hundred 80,000 people there, and 999999 percent of them are going, Tom was an absolute integral reason that we're here because he was the only ruckman that we had in the prelim. So nice. And amongst all of that, I still hear these two young fellas who i got no (laughs) idea who they are and never will yell out, you know, oh, boy, million dollars a year, useless pieces of shit or something like that whilst I'm sitting in a Hilux. And to the point, it's like, there's, there's no courage involved in yelling that. We're stuck on a car <laughs> moving, moving three kilometres an hour. Um, but, you know, you just, your ears are so tuned to hearing what's negative in the world. And, yeah. uh, you know, as, as I said, it did was, it was, it, haunt me for days. But then the positive stuff that people would give me would wash over me in seconds. Uh, and that's just the way the, the brain works, I
3: suppose. Memories from the grand final? Like what, what are the specific moments that stay with you?
4: Yeah, uh, the the first goal that I kicked, so it must have been the second quarter, so I kicked that left foot snap, um, which, you know, obviously the most talked about goal is that final one. Um, you give me that ball about 150 times, I'll kick it once, I reckon. But yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I, I could always kick on my left. I was quite a quite a good left foot kick for a big guy, but uh, and I'd practice that, and I'll give you all the, you know, the exceptions. But that like I couldn't see between the posts. It was as deep in that pocket as I could, and um. You know, I didn't even have to look. As soon as I kicked it, it was going through. Um, and I think that really gave me, you know, I started the game, I started the game with a drop mark that everyone said was a nervous thing. And it's really funny because Nick Flosten, um from Richmond is one of my best mates and he had a similar thing happen in his first fo- uh, grand final, one of three, mind, mind you, um, yes. in 2017 where he slipped over or something. And, and everyone goes, oh, it's nerves. And me and him have had many a laugh about this. Marcus Bond and Pally kicked the ball at 500 miles an hour, about a foot off the ground, and it was swinging all over the joint. And they're like, just catch it. Can't see that on tally. And then Nick was like, mate, the turf came up underneath me. What do you want me to do? So that was the first moment. The goal uh, in the second quarter was a, was a great moment. And I, I just had this overwhelming sense the whole day that we were going to win. Like before we got there, um, you know, it was like, you know, talking on the phone to Dad on the way in, he, he, I think he ran out of advice. This is the one moment in my, my life that he never had advice for, because you know, I think the eighty nine Division Three Grand Final didn't really compare, you know. Um, <laughs> but he said, "Let's just see how we go," and that was the attitude I took in. Let's just see how we go. Let's just see if we can um, you know, have a crack and and have a real real run at it. And we'd had the wood over Sydney a bit in those two years leading up to it. We'd beaten them in a thriller up there early in the year, and beating them up there in the wet the year before. Um, So we were really confident against them. But, um, yeah, that last moment, uh, well, the last moment, at least for me, um, that that goal was was something that I forget.
3: Siren going. Western Bulldogs had not won a flag in however many years, Um, even though you don't start your career there. Like, that must be, um, like, regardless of what happens for the rest of your career, it must be a pinnacle.
4: Yeah, I um, I think you you appreciate it more as time goes on. I mean, you know, there's there's probably 42 players who have played in the Bulldogs uh, premiership, and they've been around for 150 years. Uh, and of those 42, you know, likely speaking, there's about 30 of us alive. Um, that's a pretty special thing to be a part of, and and I think that the history of the Bulldogs, and this is not to disparage the other clubs, but you know. Footscray is a poor place. It has never been a wealthy place. It's been a place that's been filled with the hard, blue-collared um, workers of Melbourne, a lot of immigration and migrants around our suburbs, and that's all relevant and evident in our in our great club. Um, and I think to be able to finally give them what they'd wanted after seven lost prelims uh, and for them to actually be the champions of the town rather than just the almost theirs and the... Um, you know, the, the underdogs, as they'd always been described, was, you know, it's something that you can't measure. Uh, you can't measure on a, a device or anything like that. But, you know, for me, it comes through in the conversations you have with the, the old stalwarts of the club and the people who have supported these, the, the, the Bulldogs and the Footscray since they were you know, kids and then you know, well into their 80s.
0: A lot of them talked about um, Bob Murphy and his involvement in that. Obviously, Bebo gives him his, his medal. Um, from the inside what was his sort of involvement and and how like crucial he was to the team at that point because on the outside it's like it seems like a nice gesture and you know they talk about how how crucial he was what was it for you as a player
4: yeah I mean so I think Bob's um, the, the crucial impact that Bob have was had was he stood up in 2014 when everything turned to shit like he when when Griff left um, when uh, when obviously Brendan was sacked, and then not to mention that we had a Simon Garlic, our CEO, was pushed out not long after during that off season. So he stood up in a time where we needed a leader, and he and he let. Uh, and he brought a new a new tone to the Bulldogs at that stage. Because you know, um, you know, Matty Boyd, who I'm an incredibly big fan of, he's just the hardest man on earth. And <laughs> there was an element I think that Brendan had brought, from my understanding, that you know. It was hardness, it was contested, it was Daniel Cross, it was um, Matty Boyd, it was these absolute maniacs who played and uh, went after football in one way, which was a 1,000 miles an hour. And there was a changing of the age group um, and, and the complexion of the list of that stage that meant that that wasn't working and that they needed to work out how they got the most out of players rather than just trying to turn everyone into Matthew Boyd or... Mitch Wallace who was playing and tagging or Libba or like these contested footballers there was so much more to the team than that and both Bob and Bevo came in and then their one word was I don't care where you think you play we're going to play you where you play your best footy and for those two years that's what happened and I think to Bob you know it was a, a absolutely devastating to lose him in round three and it was sort of unthinkable but The the challenges and the challenge that all those boys faced, and I don't just mean Bob, I mean, you know, Mitchie Wallace was one of them, Jack Redpath, uh, Lin Jong, you know, uh, Matt Suckling towards the end of the These guys who were first team players who were missing out on a grand final and they could see it coming. And also, you know, not all grand finals are equal. There's moments in time when, you know, perhaps you look at, um, you know, look at Collingwood this year. Collingwood could win it again next year. And I think a lot of the players in that list are going, let's gear up and go again because we missed out. There's It was a different story with us. Whilst we were still confident leading into the 2017 year, we'd gone on a run that had never happened in AFL history to win that premiership. So I think that the the challenge for those guys both now and then was, how do I not negatively impact my teammates? How do I try in some way, shape or form to positively impact them whilst they're going through the dreams that I've had since I was three years old and I can't, Um, go through that with them and I'm as close to as possible to being there but I'm not and I never will be and the reunions won't have me and um, you know I'm not really a part of the team I won't have a medal that lasts with me forever I won't be in the pictures like all of that stuff is incredibly difficult to deal with and I think Bob amongst those other boys just their utmost to drag us all through um, to make sure that they were making a positive impact not a negative one which is not something that's easy to do.
3: So that um, that 2016 Western Bulldog side uh, handed me and my teammates one of the great sprays of all time, knocking us off. (laughs) I bet they did. What happened? What happened? Mate, Nizzy, I remember because we were fifth, you were eighth.
4: Um, I think that's right. right, you guys had had a great finish to the end of that year.
3: Oh, yeah, we were sizzling, mate. Don't worry about that. We were (laughs) absolutely sizzling. We'd just been in the grand final the year before. Like you said, it was like, the oh, we lost that grand final. We'll just win next year. And we just missed top four, but, you know, it's like the Bulldogs coming over from the, just being done by Frio the week before. You had no one playing. It's like, yeah, we'll just, you know, Western Bulldogs first, but the rest, we are focus on that. And anyway, we won't go through the game. I remember Nizzy walking into the change rooms afterwards and just teeing off. Oh, oh, no no oh. one's got the prize. You're all, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was one of the great sprays, So thank you for that, Tom. I appreciate that, mate. <laughs> what
4: well, do you want to make, I'll make you feel worse is that the night before, um, so we, we had two groups of players fly in. I don't know if you know this. So we had, we had guys fly in who'd had ankle injuries like me or soft tissues. We flew in on the Thursday. I oh, know it must have been on the Tuesday, I suppose, because we played the Thursday night. Yeah. So it was like, let's not risk any, like, you know, inflammation or swelling. And then the main group came in the day before, and they were supposed to land at 2 p.m. local time. They didn't get a plane until 4. Uh, Melbourne time and they landed with they, they got to the hotel at 8.15pm the night before that game okay. so we didn't get to do a captain's run we went down to Trinity College in the dark and like jogged around and like pretended like we knew what we were doing it was the worst possible preparation I've ever had for a game of football <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah it makes me feel great thanks mate
4: all the time for that very uh, it's very good
3: so with all these positive things and like I think it's been you know, this is three years of your career, by the way, which I just think is ridiculous. I, I do feel like looking at everything and researching for this and having a look at everything, it's almost like you fast-tracked everything throughout your career, everything that happened to you. A lot of people take 15 years to do it. You did it in three. Um, What's happening off-field off for you? Um, what sort of headspace are you in? Because I think it's an important part of your story.
4: Uh, Now or, or during my career? That's during,
3: during your career, like during these three years, and then, you know, you, you finish – your AFL career after seven, seven years and it's cut short. So what's happening through this, I would think a lot of positivity times. Are you in a good headspace or not?
4: Yeah. So my, the two years where things really got out of control, um, before it all sort of, I announced in 17, what was going on was really 15 and 16. So, you know, you, I remember going up to the giants and having a few issues with sleep and, Um, you know, stressing about the game or stressing about training and sitting up and staring at the ceiling until the early hours of the morning before you had to go out and run 15Ks and being like, this is weird. Um, But really the mood side of things, uh, above and beyond the sleep issues I was facing, um, really started to get out of control in 2015. And what it looked like for the most part was, you know, I wouldn't sleep and then I'd feel incredibly anxious and then I'd go and train and I'd feel a bit better, but then I'd be so tired i have issues with depression later in that um, that time period, and you know there are periods of time through sixteen in particular where you know I wouldn't sleep Thursday, Friday night, then you'd play a game, and then you'd play rubbish, and then you'd feel horrible for two days, and then you'd just try and ramp it back up and play uh, again the next week, and they would go, you know, that, that at times went for a month or two at a time. At times, to your point, there was great months, there was great periods of time, and that's why I think you know I never dealt with that really dangerous. Um, mental state that I was in because I was like, well, it might turn around in a week and it might turn around in in a few weeks. And then when it did, I was like, see, it'll be fine. And then two weeks later, I'd find myself in the same position and, you know, really, really in some dark places. And um, as I said to you, I think, you know, after two years of really, you know, significantly dealing with those issues, sleep, uh, anxiety and and later depression um, through 15 and 16, I, I was really in the headspace that After winning a premiership, it was like, it's got to improve. Like, everything has to improve. But, you know, coming back to that footy club, it was like being hit with a sledgehammer. Um, You know, the dread of trying to get ready again for another season, the pressure of performing. The conversation around me was one that they've said a thousand times, which was, oh, Tomahawk kicked... Three in his premiership in 2011, and then he became a great player. Now, Tomahawk was a few years older than me in terms of comparing age to age, but it was exactly what I was thinking. Like, I've had the breakout game. I've had the breakout season. Um, yeah, let's turn this into to a career. Um, but, you know, by the middle of 2017, the same issues have been going on and on and on through preseason, through the start of the year, and then I got to a point where I just didn't sleep for like two weeks and I was still playing football at the top level Um, and then I was, I was sort of coming in and out of the side with injury, which had never really been an issue for me. And I was having calf injuries or hamstring injuries. I was getting sick all the time. I couldn't concentrate. And, you know, as you know, I mean, concentration is such a large part of playing AFL football and I'm going, I can't keep doing this. And I got no idea what I'm going to change. Um, and look, I think, you know, I just got to the point where so many people do, whether it be in football or in professional life where, you essentially just get to the point of having a complete breakdown of, you know, your mind, body and and ability to to control your emotions. And um, you know, thankfully for me and for many of the AFL boys, and unfortunately not enough people in uh the community, I had someone I could talk to, which was the Club Psych. Um, and you know, I spent a couple of hours with her on the day that I, you know, was basically taking time off footy. And um, you know, unfortunately as a, you know, 22 year old at that stage or 21 year old still probably, um, you know, footballer on a million dollars a year just won a premiership. You don't get to take a sick day and not tell people why. So um, a big part of you know my challenge was and, and fear of really dealing with this issue above and beyond. I didn't know what it was above and beyond. I didn't want to let people down was I didn't want to talk to people, you know, in the public about what was going on. Um, and I had to get to that point in 17 where I was willing to actually confront it and, and tell the world what was going on and why I needed to take time off just like anyone else. You know, I needed to rehabilitate my mind just like, People need to rehabilitate their bodies and get back um, to the best version of myself. So it was a crazy, crazy four-year run into that moment. Um, To your point, all the good things we covered first. But, you know, it was like it was littered with all of these negative moments and these negative months where I was just absolutely at my wit's end. Um, But every time that I thought the world couldn't get any worse, I'd do something that was amazing and something great would happen and I'd be like, oh, well, it's all worth it and then the dopamine hit would run off and I'd find myself in a really bad place again.
0: How did, how did you know that that wasn't just part and parcel of being an AFL footballer like at, at that level because, you know, you're getting success as well?
4: Yeah, well, it's a great question. So, I mean, for one, the sleep post-game is a part of being an AFL footballer, particularly if you play night games. Like, I don't know what you were like, but mate, sleeping after finishing a game at 11 o'clock at night under the lights that Eddie had is it's not easy. Um, So I understood that component of it. And I think to the question, I knew that things were getting bad when, you know, I wouldn't sleep at all. And I talked to boys about like, oh, you know, I just haven't slept that well. And they'd be like, yeah, I couldn't get to sleep till like 11 o'clock last night. And I was like, oh, 11. That sounds right. I was (laughs) up till five.
1: Um,
4: So it was a bit of that. And then I think just the fact that, you know, it hadn't happened in my junior career. I'd never experienced issues like this when I was growing up. Um, and there was no reason to feel the way that I was feeling. Uh, but again, you know, I didn't learn about mental health when I was in school. I didn't understand what anxiety was, didn't understand what depression was or what, you know, regular sleep Um, above and beyond what I was, you know, get your eight hours. So uh, when you don't know what a problem is and you can't define it, it's not It's not easy to come up with a solution. And uh, again, you know, we we all as people, I think, we do two things to make life easier. The first is we look at, what we see in the world as um, the people that we want to be as being successful. So we go, they've got the car or they've got the house or they've got the job or they're in the media. Maybe they're playing footy, right? So they've got the complexion of life. That's happiness. And what we do is we go, well, I'm going to itemize those things and select them and try and bring them into my life. And if I have them, then I'll be happy. So we go down that path. And, you know, for me, that was something 100% that I was looking at. But the other thing that we do is, and you see this in professional services in Melbourne it's, you know, or in all of the states, but it's so common in professional services, say your legal and accounting and finance and banking is if I just get to that next outcome that I'm looking for, you know, whether it's in your work, finish the big project or you know complete the big assignment, win that award, get the promotion. If I get there, the 17 issues I'm dealing with now or whatever the number is will disappear because I'm now at that stage. And when I'm there, they won't be important anymore. It'll be fine. And typically speaking, what happens is that people get to that moment and then they go, holy shit, my life's exact same as what it was except now I've taken on more pressure, more um, stress, more uh, accountability, more responsibility, and I still haven't dealt with those things that have been here. And that's exactly what happened to me um, in the sense that I knew there was an issue, I knew I needed to deal with it, I knew something was going wrong, but I had enough in my life from a milestone point of view up until that premiership in 16 to go, oh. I still got things to accomplish. If I can, if I can accomplish them and be a good enough footballer, it won't matter. All this stuff will go away.
3: Yeah, I thought it was a really good question, Dan, because I was sort of sitting here thinking and can relate a little bit. Look, up, you know, sleep was never an issue for me. I certainly no um, oil painting over here. I've got my own issues, but um, sleep I could do. Um, but the up and down nature of AFL footy, like that, that I can you know completely see that and I think a lot of AFL guys would be the same. It's like we've got a lot of these issues but if we can just win this weekend then everything will be better next week and then maybe it is better next week and then you lose and it's like oh my god the (laughs) fucking world is going to end this week and then you might win and it's a roller coaster of emotions really if you just break it down. Um, So look clearly I think you probably you had more of an extreme roller coaster. and I was just wondering like was there a was there like a real dark point or was there a real moment where you thought like Fuck this is bad, or was it just a build up that turned it into what it was? I, I don't know if that makes sense.
4: Yeah, I think um you're describing that um the roller coaster of football is a really good example of what changed for me. So I, to your point, you know, I went up and down like everyone, right? But I got to a point where winning, I didn't feel good at all. I just got to the point where I was like, thank fuck we didn't lose. Yeah. <laughs> like and it was it was beyond that 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 thought. It was it was like life is not gonna be horrible this week. Right. And if we lost, it was you know throw the baby out with the bathwater store of stuff, so um yeah, to answer the question, I mean yes, we got to a point and and sort of around 2017, as I said, so I think I'd be played against Melbourne um, and I'd played three quarters, and this had happened a couple of times that year where my calf and my hamstring and like all of these neural issues, which I never really had before I just started playing up crazy, and I couldn't get through that game. And then I had a week off. And then I think they said, look, we want you to play a half in the VFL because we're going over to play West Coast next week. You're going to play. And I remember sitting there going, there's no way. And again, I hadn't slept in two weeks. Like, there's no way I'm getting through a VFL game of footy. There's no way in the hell. I can't possibly do that. And, you know, I'd had a thousand negative thoughts an hour for the last six months, at least at that stage, probably longer. But At that moment, I'm sitting there going, I can't possibly go to do this thing they're asking me to do. But the alternative is I'm going to have to go to the club somehow and take a week off footy, which is not an option. And, you know, again, AFL players have got it very, very good. The one thing that we have, I think, that above and beyond everything else is there's no opportunity really to take a break through the whole year. And every game matters just as much as the one before um, up until the final series. And, um, you know, I was sitting. I remember in in my place in Albert Park, uh, or the one I was renting, not the one I'm sitting in now. And you know, it was miserable. It was like, you know, talk about things that impact your mental health. Melbourne in June is, just- <laughs> <laughs> and it was bucketing down. It was windy. It was a, It was just miserable, and I just didn't know what to do. I was just running through a thousand things, thinking about how I was going to be able to possibly deal with dealing with the club or should I do this or should I just play or I can't play. I, I just couldn't work it out. And thankfully, as I said, the, the thing that stood out in my mind was to pick up the phone and, and club uh, call the club psychologist, Lisa, and basically say, Hey, can you just help? Like, I don't know what I need, but I need you to help. And, you know, we spoke, as I said, for hours, but the, the thing was, you know, I I had to work out in about 12 hours how to communicate to the football club that their most highly paid asset wasn't available this weekend. And likely wouldn't be available the weekend after. And, you know, you ex- extrapolate that and probably wasn't going to be available for a while. Um, and the reason was something that no one can see, that no one can understand, and that, frankly, no one in the AFL had ever spoken about in depth ever in terms of players that were still playing. There had been players that took time off, there had players that said, I need, you know, I've got mental health issues. I just need a week, um, or personal leave or whatever. But no one had said, I've got... Issues with this, this, and this, and this is why I can't play football. Um, and look, the reason I went down that path is really simple: is because you know, given my the, the scrutiny that I was under, I didn't want people to think, "Oh, he's sitting at home as a million-dollar-year a year player, whinging about the people who are mean to him on Twitter." Um, you know, well, I was you know, I wasn't offended if old big thumbs over here was giving it to me.
3: <laughs> big thumbs, <laughs> BT. <laughs> I don't come at other players, yes.
4: Yeah, yeah, yes, 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 yes yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Kane didn't in the first little bit either. But without- <laughs> oh no, Kane, <laughs> no. Kane, over it here, Kane, <laughs> Kane. But but I needed the fans to know. I needed the club to know. I needed my teammates above and beyond the ones that I already spoken with to know that like I'm injured. Like I, my body is not up to playing AFL football. Now the reason my body's up not up to playing AFL football is not the same as everyone else's. It's not coming from me having a torn calf or a you know a, a bad shoulder. It's because I haven't slept, I've been under extraordinary stress for multiple years and I'm unable to manage it and I need to get on top of these things so that I can sleep, so that I can deal with this stuff and I can come back and play football. Um, And look, that's not an easy thing to tell the executive of uh, of a football club who obviously invested so heavily in you and particularly when you're in a state like that and and you're incredibly vulnerable. So I'm really thankful I had Lisa to help me support, uh, support me through that. Um, But yeah, it it was an incredibly dark period of time in my life.
3: Your first game for the Bulldogs, round one, 2015, against West Coast. Your last game for the Bulldogs, round 18, against West Coast. So, started and ended your career against the Mighty Eagles. Uh, yeah, and
4: that peak in the middle, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Ending some careers there in 26. <laughs> <at that point. laughs> there was multiple dealers. A lot of West Coast involvement here. So, uh the point I make there, the start and the end of the Western Bulldogs career and and, and ultimately your AFL career, um, what's the feeling after that deal gets done? You've spoken a little bit about getting to that point and the support you receive, but I don't know, the day or the moment or whatever it is when, right, you're finished and you, is it relief or is it anxiety again? Like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to deal with the bullshit that comes after that. How do you feel when your call quits and, and, and it gets done?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's always a process, right? Like, I think everyone thinks that you make rash decisions or someone like me who gave back, you know, two and a bit million bucks to the club and moved on at 23 and still had years to run and was like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. So many people tweeted or said that. And look, that's fine. I don't care. Um, I really don't care what these people think because, you know, they they weren't in my shoes. And if there's, um, you know, one thing I can stand behind as a player who finished early is, I did the right thing in terms of what I wanted to do with my life. And I certainly didn't do what I've seen so many players do. And I'm not having a go at other players. I'm saying many players take the cash in the last few years because they're worried about their future in terms of making good money. And, you know, I couldn't do that. I couldn't sit there for two years, two and a half years and just be like, oh, this is great. I'll take a massive paycheck and um, pretend like I'm not completely destroying every relationship that I have with this place." So, um, you know, I, I'd made mention to the club doctor at the end of 2018. And the reason I stopped playing after that West Coast game that you mentioned um, was because I'd had this really bad back thing that I was dealing with through 18. And actually, funnily enough, I'd had surgery on two weeks ago. So, um, and I'd said to him at the end of 18, in, in that, in the sort of 19 pre season, so it was probably three or four months after that game, and was saying, you know, I don't think I want to do it anymore, Zim. Uh, you know, and Gary, the bloke with the massive mustache, if you watch the dog playing, great man, great man. Yes. Um, and I said, I, I think I'm done. And he goes, "What do you mean?" Like he looked at me like I had three heads. And um, I said, "Look, I'm not like I'm not depressed. I'm not sad. Like I'm, I just I don't love it anymore. I used to want to play, and I used to want to play the, all the time. And um, he goes, "Look, Tom, I've heard this story too many times. And every time the players come to me when they're out of form or they're injured, they say, oh, I want to give it away.' And he says, six months later, every single one of them comes back to me in tears, going." filled with regret, I wish I'd made a different choice because in that moment when they're so sad or miserable or frustrated, you think the world is never going to change. And for me, that wasn't the place that I was in, but I listened to it. I thought it was really great advice. I made it through to probably three or four months after that. And I was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm ready to go. Um, and, you know, I walked uh, into the club for the last time, Uh, luckily enough to get a retirement speech, which you think is a given, but it's not a given. Like even great players sometimes, if they don't leave ceremoniously, they don't get the chance.
3: Yeah, I mean, 60 games. I mean, like I know you've had a journey, but you played just over 60 games. So I haven't seen too many 60 gamers give a retirement (laughs) speech. I might have.
4: And I knew that for a fact, so... I think it's very short, very short. Um, and, and, like you know, I tell people, it's, I saw, you know, Bob Murphy, Dale Morris, Matty, like these guys give retirement speeches and they talk for 20 minutes and it's amazing. They deserve it. Filled with emotion. Not me. I've been there for five minutes. So I said two things. I said, um, I said, uh, firstly, to, uh, to everyone in the room, I need you to understand you're the reason I lasted as long as I did, not the reason I'm leaving. And secondarily to the players, if you're thinking about renegotiating your salary, now would be a really good time because <laughs> we put $2 bucks back in the cap. <laughs> I, it, it, there's a, I think there's a video out there of this, I think. No, I'm actually probably not. There is now. <laughs> it, it was, mate. It was. Everyone laughed. It was, everyone was so nervous going into this thing. I could sense the nerves in the room. And as someone who does a lot of public speaking now, I don't know where I found the like the wherewithal at that stage early in my speaking career to know what I was doing. But they, they, lost, they lost it. I got to walk out of the club, you know, with my future wife and my um, happy, ready to go. And you'd think it just ends there. if things it's great. But a week later we watched them. I watched the boys get absolutely smashed by Freo and I was sitting at home with a beer going, this is awesome. Um, <laughs> Bray on Monday is going to be horrible. <laughs> and then a week, about three days after that, I was like, what am I doing with my life? Um, right. And, you know, people, we talk about mental health all the time. I think one of the great misnomers of this whole thing is, um you know that anxiousness and that desire to do something that many of us don't know how to control it's not always bad you know that moment in time I felt stressed and anxious because I was like I need to make something of this I can't just sit here and like I hadn't you know I hadn't I'd earned good money but I hadn't earned enough money to sit on a beach forever um especially not at the age of 23. um, From that moment on I dove straight into all of the work that I do now and um you know I went through a pandemic just like everyone else where I lost all my work and had to re- figure things out, uh, wrote a book, you know, got a job invested in a business or, or two and, yeah, um, now I am where I am.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you've already sort of reached it for me, but, like, I've, I, if we could put a bow on it, which I understand that everything's an open basket basically and you can never tie it up. But, yeah, whats what is, has what is, what is the transition been like and, and what's life right now, you know, for Boyd?
4: Yeah, so I think the transition, as I said, I probably picked the worst time in human history to leave the AFR. Yeah, yeah. uh, where, you know, within... So I sort of had a pipeline of six, seven months to really work out what I wanted to do. I went back to play a bit of local footy um, at the end of 2019. And then I got to the start of 2020 and I'd line up all of this public speaking work I wa- wanted to make an impact in the mental health space. It was all looking great. And um, I lost every gig that I had, which would have been 40 or 50 at this stage in a day. Wow. all it was, good. And again, I, look, I'm not here to ask for sympathy or pity. I didn't need that. The money was going to be fine. I, as I said, I made really good money playing footy. I was very lucky in that case. But the structure was something that I desperately wanted. Um, it was something that I sort of grappled with at the end of 19 without that, like, you know, get up and go to work thing, which, you know, to be frank, when you leave football, you've been told since you were five years old where to be and what to do in every moment for the last whatever amount of years, which for me was 18. And so all of a sudden I had all this autonomy and choice and I was trying to work out what that was going to be filled with and I filled it and then it was gone. And And look, I think I learned two things when the pandemic hit around the work piece. The first was, um, you know, I don't think I was quite done with the football thing. And so I wanted to, you know, really dive back into what had happened and why it's happened so I could move on properly. And that's when I wrote the book, um, Nowhere to Hide, which came out last year. And, you know, that was a, Two year, two and a half year process where I wrote it myself, and then I'm, you know, pitch it to the publisher and go back and write it again myself, and with some with some help from an editor. And it was like, it was just an amazingly difficult but in, enjoyable experience in the sort of sickest of ways. Um, <laughs> and then the other thing was that the thing that I missed most, which was you know, probably obvious now looking back, was I needed a home base. Like I needed somewhere to go where I knew the people that were there. We were there for the same reasons because I'd had that every single day of every moment of my life since I was five. And now I had home with my wife and then I had nothing. So if I was doing speaking work, I was out on the road by myself. I was organizing myself. I was invoicing myself. It was Everything was done by myself. Um, and so that's when I actually ended up joining uh, the business that I invested in and am a part of in before which is um, you know, essentially champion data for the workplace. We're a performance company that works with accounting firms uh, around the country. And, um, yeah, it's been an incredible place for me to learn and grow and meet new people and, and do the speaking stuff and find a balance between the two. So um, this year will be the biggest one that I've had yet. Um, I'll probably tick close to 85 or 90 speaking engagements for the year. Um, you know, the book, as I said, came out. I'm an ambassador for WorkSafe, um, for Lifeline and and um, and the Western Bulldogs Community Foundation, do the work with Ever perform, and, yeah, try and find the, the best of all of it, which is, um, yeah, it's an incredible life that I get to lead.
3: Last question. Um, not that I uh, am, again, I keep saying, not that I sort of understand exactly what you're talking about, but talking about speaking and specifically about mental health and dif- difficult things to speak about, where you've got to be vulnerable and you've got to, uh, perhaps show a side that you may not show publicly often. If you're doing something like 90 speaking gigs a year, um, you know, just speaking honestly is that is that fatiguing? I, I can imagine that 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 would be hard.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all different muscles that I find um, that sort of apply to the different work that I do. And I'd you know, be remiss of me to mention I'm also a father and got married,
3: which that should be top well, of the list. The father. we well, see. Last,
4: yeah, best for last is the way yes, I do. That's this correct. Sorry, Anna and Ronnie. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it depends. I think, you know, I think at times um, it really depends how you approach these, these, um, these events. And and there's a certain, I think, demographic of people who really take it upon themselves to pour out every negative moment of their life in the hope that it will help people. Um, and I, look, it's not to say that um, it does not helpful. It's certainly just, it's not quite the way that I go about it. I think, to the to the conversation we've had today the lesson of my life is pretty simple i think for other people which is um you know I had everything absolutely everything you could ask for from a very young age around individual success team success adulation money fame if you want to call it that in the in the league um I even had the family stuff sorted on the side with my you know future wife and all that stuff looked perfect, and yet still, I managed to find myself in a really diabolical and, and quite desperate period of time in my life. Um, and the lesson is: hey, if you know someone is lucky and you know entitled as me can really struggle with this stuff, well, um, you know why wouldn't that be the same for anyone else who's got a life cer- set, of, set of life circumstances that are vastly um, different and perhaps more difficult? So um, that's the way I approach it. There's certainly moments in time where I have a lot of difficult conversations with a lot of individuals, and you know I've spoken from you know, the C-suite of some of the multinational companies here in Melbourne or around the country, all the way out into like, you know, tiny little country clubs in the far-reaching parts of Victoria and beyond. And no matter where you go, the stories are the same. We've lost someone. Um, I've struggled. My friends struggled. Um, we don't know what to do about a club. But there's a lot of people that are really, you know, having challenging times. We don't know what to do about our business. And I think it's a really humbling thing for me to understand just the far reaching nature of this topic and how difficult it is for people to fix because it's not a simple um, sort of simple thing to, to go after and try and change. So um, yeah, I've, I've learned to try and find the balance between the, the, I suppose, the satisfaction and the well, ideally the impact as well as the, um, you know, the individual uh, journey and, and, um, and struggle that it might yeah, involve doing these gigs myself.
3: It's been a great chat. Um, we aren't, quite finished social media to follow this which is not social Scocial. I mean tell you what uh, X with Elon Musk has got something coming up alongside here social media this is the questions from the people for you Tom not just Dan and I but if you have enjoyed Tom's chat I would encourage you to seek Tom out on any of the cha- channels on social media get in touch with him go and read his book which I will be doing have not yeah. done I will yep. be doing off the back Big words,
4: mate. I'm still a ex-footballer you know yeah like-
3: yeah don't worry I can write too so you- we can we can judge it at the end of uh, the time. I've going to big spot. But-
4: yeah, yeah, mate. Like, absolutely- How many pictures are in it? No, uh, no pictures. That costs more. Mate, it's, no.
3: it's a well-written <laughs> book from all regards. So if you have enjoyed Tom, make sure you do because I think it's a pretty special, his story. Now, uh, let's finish off with yep. social media. This is where the people can ask the questions, Tom. Let's go. Jake Nash underscore.
0: How does it feel to be part of one of the all-time great BT calls?
4: Um, I would say the great BT call. I don't know if anyone else has been sworn at Iceland Radio. Um, Yeah, I I love it. I love it. Look, and, you know, talking about staying relevant, everyone, you know, all the older people go, oh, but the people won't know who you are into the future. Um, So you can't just do this stuff forever. Every year, a new round of 12-year-olds go and message me on Facebook and Instagram and tag me and all this stuff going, oh, BT's commentary. So I might, be, I might be relevant into perpetuity just based on that one call. So, <laughs> thank you, Brian.
3: Brian needs a little clip on the way to go. Uh, John, double underscore Dawson. Uh,
0: should first-to-five-year players not get more than $500,000
4: a year? Oh, no. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm the, I'm the worst guy to ask that question. Go ask a rookie and then you'll make them feel better.
3: Ask uh, Scoey, I'd uh, like $500,000 a year. Yeah, uh, Seth Wayne. Vanders. Uh,
4: how do you feel about the pressure on Harley Reid? Uh, I met him or saw him very close to me. We did a gig up at his club. Look, I, I think the the um I think the requirement of eighteen year olds to understand the like macro trends of the trade period and the clubs that are involved in it is just crazy. Um, it sounds like to me from what I've heard from him, he's just a country footy kid, and and ideally those guys thrive in the AFL. So, um, we'll see what the pressure is like next year. That's when it all really counts.
3: Now this is relevant to our podcast here at Backchat. One of our co-hosts, Hamish Brayshaw knocked off a hundred chicken nuggets last night in one of the great, I would say human yeah. acts of
0: performances in history. Yeah.
3: So no. Taz underscore Kai asks. Yeah, could,
0: could you eat one hundred chicken nuggets?
3: In one? No. Score.
4: I mean, look, it depends. It takes some preparation, I think. Yeah.
3: Hamish just rolled in after work and just knocked up a hundred <laughs> as easy as he like.
0: He had two breakfast
3: was for lunch. He won the Sandover medal, best best uh, footballer in Western Australia two two months ago and he's knocked <laughs> off a hundred. No worries. Um no worries. Scotty doesn't know. Uh, does the a f l handle
0: mental health issues better for a new player, and what else can be done well that 's a
3: that's a that 's a long answer yeah okay. yeah let
4: me do it in very very uh quick terms uh the a f l set the policy the clubs uh look after the experience of players um the more we can uh give our more tools we can give our players to deal with this stuff the better um but it's never going to be easy playing AFL football. It's uh, it's an advertising-driven advertising, advertising driven, um, industry, which means attention. It means vitriol. It means bums on seats and eyes on screen. So um, tools, teach me how to fish.
3: Hashtag Evelyn. Uh,
0: have you watched – well, firstly, have you watched the Beckham doco?
4: I've watched uh, half of it.
0: Great. So thoughts on the impact of the red card and, and how that's affected his mental health?
4: Um. Yeah, I mean – I can't imagine. Like that is nuclear version of what I went through. Mm. Um, by the way, not a red card from where I was. <laughs> yes. That guy do- dove so hard. Yeah, and the the um because where is he from? He's from Spain or something. Yeah. But he said it, he said it wasn't a red card either. So oh. happy days,
3: which makes it worse, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, the last but not least, the egg man.
0: Yeah, tappy ninety five. How does Tom Boyd like his eggs? Sincerely. The uh, that's a good
4: question. I um I'm a big scrambled egg man. Like a a quality with a bit of chorizo and you know, I like cooking at home. So anything I can sort of make it interesting, um, scrambled eggs for me.
3: Uh, mate, Tommy Boyd, we've really appreciated your time. We can hear a little kid in the background and Dan and I know the troubles, fathers of two sitting right here, mate. So we thank you for your time um a big two shout different out sets of kids by the way to, yeah we're not, we're not fathers together <laughs> um, we do have two children each. fleet network powering the podcast this year Swimply whippersnapper whiskey margot river roasting co blue bet shelter brewing co leadable cameras mumba digital uh november through november and uh everything you can find backchatstudios.com.au did you have fun mate we enjoyed having you
4: Oh, mate, look at you, boys. You've got 75 different sponsors. We're making it big time. Well done. Great work, lads. Yeah, look, I love what you're doing. I just need to hear a different set of opinions than the ones that I hear every day in the media, if I can possibly do that and keep doing what you're doing. And, um, yeah, sounds like some exciting stuff.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?